Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 167 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, it's May 20th, it's 2020. All that on the old calendar, on the new pandemic calendar, it's just yet another day, the nth week of every day's the same. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. In my pandemic calendar, I have this as day 69. Uh, are you measuring from what, uh, the 13th of March? The 13th, because that was the first day that we had no, no school, no daycare. And so I, I'm measuring it as days with no daycare. And, and this, is, <laughs> this is day 69 without daycare. Days seem like months, years. <laughs> uh, I, I told you about the, the Cleveland, like what day is it? Well, Carrie and I both at various points today have messed up the date. Um, oh. and the day of oh, the week. Yeah. So, no, there's, um, there, there's somebody in the neighborhood who's got a sign they put out every day that's like, FYI, today is Wednesday. Um, what a week, huh? Lemon, it's Wednesday. Um, <laughs> so I, I am decked out uh, in, my, in my UT uh, uh, um, paraphernalia um, in honor of our graduation ceremony coming up on Saturday, our virtual uh, uh, sunflower ceremony coming up this Saturday. You know, I got to say that as much as, of course, everyone would like to be in person to have the full proper experience, there are certain things about the virtual, uh, the virtual presentation that will be nice. Um, I think that every single student will get, a, you know, kind of the full screenshot and, and a little more focus on them as an individual than the sort of the, you hear the name for a second and there's just somebody wearing the identical clothing as everyone else walking the stage. So, and I know, I know that you and a lot of our colleagues have put some special effort into uh, recording stuff. I, I think it's, it's a not bad response to a bad situation. <laughs> That's a uh, uh, damning with faint praise if ever I've heard it. Hey, we don't, we don't get to gather back at the law school after everyone's walked the stage. We don't have to walk across campus and then go into the ultra crowded room and, uh, meet parents which is a bummer it's always really fun to uh, to meet the parents especially it's Although, also i mean but by, by my lights it's the best food the law school serves all year there's there's some i know i think it's swedish hill who does that maybe is it I, i'm not 100 percent sure anyways um that's what we're that's what we won't be doing this weekend um, uh indeed although uh, i'm trying to think and and we'll just be you know although there i what it's it's going to be live on on youtube at one o'clock on saturday the the Yes, it's a pre-recorded. Yes, yes. sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, live to tape on YouTube, right? Yeah. For a second, I was like, "Oh, wait a minute. Am I supposed to be doing something?" Again? Um, I've, already, I've already recorded all the names because you know I read out the JD names. There you go. It's always um, kind of fun to do that. So I also um, today is also I've lost track of the days, but you know I argued this case in the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces on October 16th. It was the first case Cap heard this entire term. Bobby, they've decided every other case they've heard really since like <laughs> up to March. <laughs> what, what did you do to those poor people? Do you think they just forgot? Like, should you like send them a note being like, guys, you kind of forgot to actually rule in my case? I just have to say, I've been resisting the urge to tweet about it because I feel like that would be inappropriate. I mean, I guess, I, you know. I think that it's, yeah, I think it's risque just to be talking about it because you never know. Now, maybe, that, maybe they're poised on the razor's edge between the, the two positions. The, the problem is not the absolute length of time. I mean, it's only been a little over seven months and in, you know, federal appellate yeah, court land, crazy. that's not ridiculous. It's just the, having done all the others. Well, two things. One, that they've literally decided every other case, which is consistent with their median time to decision of like 80 days. But two, suffice it to say, a complicated, fractured opinion is not the impression the oral argument left me with. <laughs> You're like, if they're going to shoot you, put you out of your misery now. Seriously. Um, <laughs> you know, if I, if I have to write a cert petition, I mean, you know. Hey, maybe you're getting one long, detailed dissent in your favor. I mean, I'd prefer one long majority opinion in my favor. There you go. So <laughs> see what yeah. I can do. <laughs> uh, all that's to say, just you know, um, I have like you know, I have a few um, email addresses that like you know are VIPs in my iPhone, so I get an alert when I get emails from them. Um, Karen's one, and almost all the others are the e-filing addresses from you know the courts that I'm I'm working on cases before. And every time I get like an ECF notice, I get all excited, and I'm like, darn it, it's just a new lawyer in one of these cases. <laughs> You are involved in a lot of cases now. I don't, I don't get those kinds of notices, and I'm glad for it. I was going to say, you're not missing anything. Yeah. Uh, speaking of cases, we have yes. stuff. There's we stuff. actually have real, and including some like bread and butter, right? Yeah. It's not, hey, guys, it's Old not just day. Trumplandia today, although we'll have funny. 
Uh, we'll, we'll start with Trumplandia. We have a, a trio of things to touch base with at least. Trumplandia. We've got uh, we've got some more Inspector General activity, or or perhaps uh, that's not quite the right word for it. No, 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 no. Inspector yeah, General. Is that Inspector Gadget's theme song? Sure is. <laughs> go Gadget, go. <laughs> we've got we've that's all too fitting. We have Go Inspector Go. We have we're missing one now. Inspectors, um, we're missing more than one. We're going to touch base. Also, uh, there was an, a very interesting piece uh, in the AP from Deb Reichman on presidential emergency uh, documents. We're going to talk about these PADs. Uh, what's the A for, Steve, in that? Action. Pres yeah, presidential emergency action documents. We're going to talk about PADs a little bit. And then we're going to, of course, uh, check in with uh, Mike Flynn and the the grand sentencing drama. Uh, and I will pose the question of whether the Flynn sentencing proceeding is becoming the O.J. Simpson trial of our times in terms of the media circus that is that is going to inevitably begin to focus around this. And I'm going to try to argue that it's worse. No, <laughs> go oh, heavens. Um, and then we're going to pivot to a topic we have not had a lot of action on on the show in recent months but is is a perennial and that's the tension between the pursuit of national security and intelligence aims uh and privacy we've got two items we have uh a dramatic intervention by the justice department connecting the pensacola shooter case with the going dark debate and then separately we've got this really interesting opinion out of germany's federal constitutional court in what i'm going to call the the reporters without uh frontiers sans frontiers um, case involving uh, the German equivalent to CIA and NSA in terms of being a foreign intelligence service, the BND, and uh, a ruling striking down various aspects of its current governing statutory framework on privacy rights and freedom of the press rights grounds. It's really interesting. Uh, and then, of course, never to, never to be too far away, Guantanamo military detention We've, we've got a review, as promised last week, in the Ali decision from the D.C. Circuit. And I think that ought to be a, more than enough. We'll try to hit all those relatively quickly. No pre-planned frivolity. We're just going to chat about whatever's on our minds once we get to that point in the show. I'll kind of say that um, apparently on Earth 2, uh, according to Baseball Reference, which, by the way, is, is my jam, um, in, today, in the simulation of the Major League Baseball season, uh, Pete Alonso today hit two homers to become the first major league player to reach 20 as the Mets beat the Diamondbacks 6-3 to three, uh, to climb back over 500 and into the heart of the wild card race. Wait, what is this? Is this somebody running at like some sort of statistically driven uh, imaginary season? Oh, yeah. And uh, the only thing I find preposterous about this is that it gives – it says Steven Matz is the winning pitcher and that he improved his record to 6-3. and three. And all I have to say is the, the, possib the, the, the possibility that Steven Matz has nine decisions in the Mets' first 47 games, the way that he pitches. Yeah, that, well, uh, you know, if he can get to five innings and they're building big run support for him, I Earth guess. Two, Wait, Earth so, two is Earth weird. Two, so is the Justice Society in that one? And we have, you know, we have original Flash and old school Green Lantern and all the rest too. The Didn't I see a story? I, I thought I saw a story on the internet like yesterday that scientists have discovered a parallel universe where the laws of physics are backwards. <laughs> look in the mirror my friend look in the mirror we're living it that's pretty great all right let's jump in with the substance uh let's go to trumplandia wish we had th theme music for this like the benny hill theme song or something um trumplandia inspector generals what has happened now well uh so you know once again on uh was it 11 p.m on friday night uh the news broke via Politico, I believe, that Trump had announced his intention to fire Steve Linick, um, the inspector general of the Department of State, um, and that under the terms of the Inspector General Reform Act of 2008, he had provided Congress with the requisite 30 days notice of his intention to do so. Um, this is the latest in a line of inspector general firings, almost all of which, Bobby, I should note, have been, you know, late on a Friday night, which shows you just how proud the administration is of these moves. Hey, maybe, um, maybe they don't know which day's Tuesday from other days either. Uh, that's definitely, I, think, I think they do. Um, I think it's definitely a news dump window. So is this like the others where there's no legal obstacle to doing it? It's more about the larger question of whether this is of a piece with the pattern of removing critics of the administration from within the executive branch and then the background sort of unitary executive ideas float around that either 
seem fine or seem problematic, depending on how one feels about that theory? I mean, I think that's part of the story. But, you know, the the claims that have been that have surfaced in the media are that Linux was in the middle of investigating various things about Pompeo specifically, as opposed to just general, you know, misconduct by the Trump administration. And, right. you know, that strikes me, Bobby, not as changing any of the legal or constitutional analysis, but just as changing what ought to be the political fallout that, you know, firing an inspector general who is investigating abuse by the secretary of the agency, um, at the request of said secretary, um, ought to smell bad to everybody, and apparently it only smells bad to Democrats. Well, so the allegation, the allegation is that uh, a, a, a staffer in his office was being asked by him to perform personal duties. I think the example that every story cites is- Washing dishes? What? Oh, I hadn't seen washing dishes. I was gonna say walking the dog. Oh, yeah. Um, so the Trump who said washing dishes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so may, it could certainly be that I'm assuming there is such an investigation and maybe even that, that that is indeed what was going on. It's possible that this was an effort to put that in, to make that investigation stop. But I don't know. I don't know how persuasive that theory actually is because it's not, it's just not obvious to me that removal of the IG as opposed to the, everyone in the office an installation of, of an acting IG, I believe who's, looks like a, a relatively reasonable choice. I haven't seen anything uh, denigrating mm. that particular selection that makes it seem like, ah, oh, this is someone who's not going to be serious about the job. It, it doesn't seem like it would actually terminate that investigation. The allegation itself doesn't strike me as quite at the level where as Pompeo, you'd be feeling like I've got to do something to make this go away. Can't be, can't be caught in dog walking gate. It, it strikes me as more of a piece with, Hey, that IG is is an Obama holdover. We want to get rid of all the Obama holdovers, that sort of thing, which is itself distasteful. But I think I'm viewing it maybe a little less problematically than some of the narratives are, are suggesting. Really? Well, that's that's my, that's my view, the one I just laid out. I mean, so Congress added the 30-day notice requirement in the Inspector General Reform Act entirely so that if it looked fishy and smelled fishy, there'd be time to investigate and perhaps even a mass veto-proof supermajorities of both houses to exact some kind of retribution or maybe even stop it. Um, I just, I, that rule, that notice requirement doesn't do anything in a world in which Congress is just going to say whatever this, the, you know, in a world in which Congress says the president has the constitutional authority to do this and therefore we don't care, even if it looks and smells really fracking fishy, what's the point? I mean, why do we even have inspectors general at that point? I don't think we disagree about that. I think what I'm saying is that the uh, the suspected fact pattern that is potentially that is in your mind, I think, putting it into that category where like you know, ring the bells. This is deeply problematic. I'm not so sure how persuaded I am by that. And now, if it turns out that's true and that there really was an attempt to silence uh, silence the investigation, then sure, yes, we're in that fact pattern. And it's a shame if Congress chooses not to react. But I'm, I'm just not sure, based on what I'm hearing so far, that it's all that plausible. That that's really what was going on here. So I'm trying to draw a distinction between the Pompeo says, oh, crap, this guy's really coming after me for dog walking gate. I've got to stop this. Let's get him fired. Th- that would be deeply problematic. I think it's more in the nature of less, you know, fur- further away from the more problematic end of the spectrum, though still questionable. Hey, we don't. We want to have all our own people only as the IGs. We don't want holdovers from the prior administration or people who aren't team players. Then why are you firing? Why are you firing him now? I mean, that's that's what they did to U.S. attorneys. And well, that's and again, as you say, like there's going to be a, a chance here to do some investigation. The House at least seems very inclined to do some investigation, and maybe we'll find out something. Um, but again, I, I just the, the story of dog walking gate doesn't strike me as necessarily getting there. Well, being, but there's also but there's also the thing about the Saudi arms sales, right? That there's also that that um, Lydic was also investigating uh, Pompeo's role in arranging these arms sales, what to to the Saudis and and the UAE. So I just I, I tell me it, more about that because that at least on, I don't I don't know anything about that, but that sounds more of a magnitude that if there was something there that that you can imagine something shadier going on i think compared to the dog walk deal i mean i saw this um, over the, i saw this i think what yesterday that there's one of the stories going around um is that um there's an investigation into an arms sale um and into sort of how they got around 
various rules limiting those arms sales. Basically, you know, there's there's a requirement under an existing statute that sales of arms to Saudi Arabia require congressional approval. And Pompeo apparently found some way to get around that in order to sort of facilitate this deal. You know, that might also be worth investigating. Bobby, there are all these lavish dinners that apparently we were all paying for. I was for. reading about the Madison dinner. Where is my invite? I mean, like, like Dale Earnhardt Jr. got invited? Come on. But, but I mean, I'm just, at, at what point does all of this, like, you know, isn't this why there's a State Department Inspector General? Yeah, so on the on the Madison dinners, I did read about that because, of course, everyone was checking it out and tweeting all about it earlier today. It was very fun to read about. Um, I can see where there could be a there there. I'm not 100% sure. When I, The one article I read through made clear that they're often, very often, and, and I assume in each instance were foreign diplomats there, that there were foreign policy relevant people there. No question there was also clearly a sprinkling and more than a sprinkling of persons who are not directly involved in, in foreign affairs. But that doesn't make it necessarily inappropriate that any one of them were there. I can imagine any number of ways in which having a, uh, an exotic guest or two along the lines of a celebrity, when you otherwise have a lot of people there that are talking about world affairs, isn't inappropriate. I, I, I'm a, a, guest, wait, a, a, guest, a guest or two? I mean, yeah. the, they, they have all, they have the list, Bobby. It's not a guest or two. Like the majority of people had nothing to do with Pompeo's job. I it had nothing to do with like. I, I question, so I don't have the list before me. I don't, you've looked at it, I guess. I haven't. So I don't have the advantage of having looked at it. However, the fact that people aren't like, so for example, would you categorize a corporate executive who's part of some large corporation that has either international sales or international offices I would categorize that as a person who could plausibly be invited there and that be within the bounds of normalcy. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily someone who's there just because they're some rich dude. I think that there are both statutory, constitutional, moral, and ethical reasons why we should be worried about government officials using tax dollars to basically seed the, their future political campaigns. And, and I'm, not say, I'm not denying that, but I am saying that I've yet to see a very persuasive account of how these dinners necessarily are bogus. Now, if you've got some particular examples that show like, look, this dinner was like, you know, it was a team of NASCAR drivers and, and no ambassadors. Yeah, that sounds outrageous. Um, but that's not necessarily what happened here. So I'm waiting to hear more. Well, it would be nice to hear more. And if only there was a position, oh, in, in the State Department even, whose job was to investigate so that we could hear more. That, you know what? That's a great idea. Indeed, there should be an inspector general. And there still is. It's not going to be the same one. But yeah, there and, still and is I'm, one. I'm, I'm hyper confident that in light of how Linick got fired, the first thing that the acting inspector general of the State Department is going to do is say, you know, woohoo, let me keep going. Yeah, um, you could be right. You could be wrong. <sighs> I can tell I'm getting, I'm getting under your skin. I just don't know why you have all this faith in these people. I mean, like, what, what is it? Like, the, I, it stinks. And I don't know how, you know, if, if something smells funny, I don't just say, well, you know, it could, if, 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 I, if I smell a bad odor in my house, I don't just say, well, it could be a problem, but, you know, maybe it's just a bad odor. Like, I mean, the, I think there's a danger here of assuming that if we don't assume that all of it is the worst case, then we're giving a free pass to it. I'm not trying to give a free pass to anything. I think that it's very problematic that they're removing inspector generals in general. It's legal, it's within their powers to do it, but as a matter of policy, I definitely don't like it for exactly the reasons you're describing. But I also think there's a risk that we find every single thing and assume that it is the worst possible scenario when maybe it'll turn out to be that way, maybe it won't be. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to sound a note not of disbelief, but of wanting to know more. Okay, so a, I think it's a meaningful difference. If there was a legitimate reason why Linick was fired, and if it wasn't just to throw him off the scent of these investigations, Pompeo has now had five days to tell us what it is. And he's been asked this in public, and his answers have, you know, I, I mean, you know. At some I don't know point, what he said. What has he said when he's been asked this? He, he said, I no longer had confidence in him. Well, again, he is entitled to remove the people that he – I'm sorry, no, he's not entitled. The president's entitled to remove people and presidents of both parties have removed inspector generals of other uh, who were not appointed by them before. That part is, I think, common ground that you can do it. There's clearly common ground here that there's a obvious interest on the part of the White House to take, take out everybody who's not on their team. So we agree on that. I agree further 
that it's very shady and deserves inspection. And I'm pleased to be clear. I'm pleased the house is looking into what was going on with removing this guy. Um, However, I, I think it's still possible to say that it's not obvious to me that it must have been the dog walk gate, uh, as I put it, that I, was I, the precipitating well, cause. And it could, have been, it could really have been simply that they just generally want to get rid of all the people they didn't appoint. Yes, or it could be, right. Or the reason why it's not obvious that it's not dog walking gate is because it's hard to figure out which of the various scandals Pompeo is enmeshed in were the ones that actually led him to fire this guy. I mean, I just, I, at some point you have to, you have to, you have to, you know, break the glass and suspend this belief a little. But um, speaking of, uh, I just, just over the Twitter transom, um, the Senate has scheduled a vote for tomorrow at noon on the nomination of John Ratcliffe to be director yes. of national intelligence. So you're buying I think me a beer. I think we can predict the count on that one pretty much. You are buying. Yes. The, the count is you owe me a beer. Yeah. What did, what did I, I can't even remember what my position had been that it wasn't going to get out of committee. Your position was that your position was that we shouldn't necessarily assume that just because, you know, they had scheduled a nomination hearing that it was going to go through. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. Of course, that's what it means. I feel like I have to go back and watch that. Surely I had a better prediction than that. But it looks like I'm out of beer. But you will, you will get your beer, sir. Um, an, eight, an eight to seven vote to get out of the Intelligence Committee. Yeah. And I mean, if I had to yeah. bet, I would say, you know, well, there are four senators who are home, so they can't vote. But I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to remember which way that cuts. So like 50 to 46 to confirm. Um, someone who is not statutorily qualified for the job, someone who has lied about his qualifications for the job, but apparently someone who, whatever, you know, let's make him the, the in charge of our nation's intelligence agencies. That's we like noticed, a good idea. We said on the show when this whole thing first came up that having Grinnell in there in the interim as the default has a powerful, whether, whether this was all done on purpose or not, certainly was brilliant if the goal was to get Ratcliffe over the finish line because it seems clear that for, for many of those who previously were perfectly happy to oppose Radcliffe, having Grinnell in the meantime in, in a very real way sort of defeats the purpose of opposing Radcliffe. If, if you've made the calculation that the things you don't like about Radcliffe are present in spades with Grinnell, and I think that is the calculation a lot of them made. And so better to have Radcliffe in there than Grinnell, and I, I can't say I disagree with that. Um, in any event, it's, it's a macabrely brilliant strategy if that was done on purpose. Maybe it was just dumb luck. Do you think it was on purpose? Not originally. I, right, not originally. I but kind of stumbled I think, into it. Like, hey, you guys don't like this guy? Well, the guy we have right now is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, and and then now that it has worked, you wonder like where else can they try the same thing? I mean, could maybe you they'll know? just keep maybe they'll just keep putting Grinnell into different. different I, I, listen, I should note while we're on this Fakakta subject, I should note that um, you know we've now broken a record for the longest vacancy in a cabinet position, and no one noticed, right? That you know yeah. we're now we're now past four hundred days with neither a Senate confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security nor even a nominee for the position. You know, not like that's an important job in the middle no, of a global it's, public it's, health crisis. It's nuts. Um, and it just underscores something that you and I both talked about a fair amount. And that is that I think we agree on this, that it, or I'll just speak for myself. I think it's perfectly <laughs> clear that the Constitution's uh, key structural element of separated powers, which involves the role of the Senate in confirming appointments, uh, is being in a gross, in gross, both in the technical and the layman sense, in a gross way being violated at this point. And yet, it's impossible to say what the mathematical formula is that tells us at what day was it too much, or, or what net number of acting positions, or what's the formula that, that combines those two factors. I, I can't tell you where the line is drawn. I do, I do feel that that line's been crossed at some point. I don't think it's justiciable, but I think as a matter of the Constitution outside the courts, uh, I assume you agree that, that the separation of powers has been functionally violated uh, by this state of affairs. Well, and, and, and I mean, at the risk of, of, of blaming not just the Trump administration, um, and I hold the Senate almost entirely responsible um, because it is the Senate's constitutional prerogative that is offended by this abuse of the vacancies process, not the House's. Um, right. And, you know, for the Senate to basically kowtow and roll over in this, to this practice, um, you know, 
makes it abundantly clear just how serious Mitch McConnell is when he talks about institutional values, um, right? As it's all about it's all about tribes, and you know the separation of powers aren't going to work very well if you know you don't care about your institution when your team is in charge. I think that is not a new development by any stretch. However, it is uh, clearly on maximum display right now. I think that the political scientists out there listening to this would surely say, you know, that the, the reality is the elected officials. Uh, they re respond to things that they think will maximize the things they're trying to maximize above all re-election um, and, and, you know, authority, whatever's going to keep them in power. And they've made a determination that appears, appears to be consistent with polling and, and actual practical results in politics that they don't pay a price for taking this approach. In fact, they, they would potentially pay a price for actually being more principled. And so instead of being principled, uh, they accommodate the administration in this approach. Um, and, and shame on them for that. Yep. So, anyway, uh, is there, is there, should, should we, should, do I, what, what's, ne what's next in our Trump land? Yeah. We've got, we've got both uh, P ads, presidential oh. emergency action documents, and uh, Mike Flynn. You want to do Mike Flynn first? Why? We're not going to say too much about this, but um, so it's, it's, it has become such a, a spectacle and is, is due to become more of one. We have this, what, a two month period for amicus briefs to be filed in is there no steve is there no mechanism about getting permission of the court to file one is there just going to be like this sort of open outcry system where everyone who wants to is going to submit something i think so but i mean the reality is that you know the only amicus who matters here is judge gleason um and you know because uh, judge gleason is the one who sullivan has appointed specifically to presumably argue and not just brief um yep. the case for denying DOJ's motion to dismiss and or the case for Sullivan holding Flynn in criminal contempt. Um, the, the, the interesting development since last we talked to me isn't that. It's the um, emergency petition for rid of mandamus that Flynn's personal <laughs> lawyers filed in the D.C. Circuit. Um, I have many thoughts. Um, uh, I've written about how the D.C. Circuit has an exceptionally high bar to mandamus. Um, basically, you have to show not just a clear and indisputable right to relief, but basically, like, there's some existing circuit law that the district yeah. court violated. This, and, this is clearly to fail that test. And, Bobby, that there's no alternative remedy, that an appeal after final judgment would be inadequate to vindicate yeah. the defendant's yeah. interest. Is, is that all? It's, like, thrice fatal. Um, so I think the real interesting question, the, so the, the complication is that the, apparently the motions panel in the D.C. Circuit this month is Judges Henderson, Wilkins, and Rao, um, which is, uh, to yeah, my mind, a pretty wild card, yeah. a pretty favorable panel for Flynn. Um, to me, the wild card is DOJ, right? If I'm the if I'm the DC Circuit, the first thing I do with this mandamus petition is I order DOJ to respond, because I don't even though DO, even though it's DOJ's motion to dismiss, I don't think DOJ would support mandamus relief at this stage, as opposed to if Sullivan subsequently denies right. their motion to dismiss and or refuses to allow Flynn to withdraw his, to withdraw his plea, you know, then I could see a stronger case for mandamus, but yeah, not there's, now. There's just, yeah, there's just no excuse for, for preemptive action at this stage. So uh, what about, there was some suggestion I th saw somewhere that uh, there's some possibility of Gleason being able to conduct some sort of investigative aspect or was, do you know what I'm talking about? There was somebody talking about the prospect of some further factual developments here. Have you heard um, anything about that? So like, yeah, it's not clear to me. I mean, I would get very nervous if Gleason really started actually like asserting any investigative powers in this context. Yeah. Like yeah. I think his job is to brief rule the law. Yeah. And, yeah, I agree. And, and the sort of scope. And so, you know, I don't, I'm not in love with what Sullivan is doing, but I don't think it is the blatant abuse of discretion that it's widely being portrayed as on the internets. Um, It'll you know, seem I, more like it if the role that Gleason plays becomes at all unorthodox. I think that's right, but it isn't yet. And I think that's right. the, you know, that's, that's what I think, you know, people are way up in arms about what to me is just, you know, to this point, not much. I mean, you know, the, yeah. this may all end with Sullivan saying, well, you know, I don't like to begrudgingly, right. I'm granting DOJ's motion. And then this all goes away. Yep. Yep. Um, on presidential emergency action documents. So there's a, 
There's been a recent round of concern about this topic, obviously driven by concern about what Donald J. Trump would do with such documents. We should spell out, like, what is a PEAD? That's not a familiar term for many people. And is there a really good cause for concern? PEAD. Um, I'll tell you what I understand them to be, and tell me if you think this is right. The basic idea, which goes back to the Cold War, is that uh, it's perfectly foreseeable that, and this was mostly originally thought of in terms of a military exigency, third world war type stuff. Um, it's perfectly foreseeable that it could go down, and if it goes down, there will be all sorts of directives and orders the president, as acting as commander in chief, um, will be wanting to issue beyond obvious, just directly military things. And that it sure would be helpful in the midst of the outbreak of World War III if already some of the stuff that you could have anticipated he might want to order has been typed up so that the staff secretary and the rest of the, the White House uh, bureaucratic process, the West Wing process, doesn't have to start that from scratch. And so thus was born the idea of having, let's have some emergency action documents that are sitting there waiting to have some key provisions filled in, but as templates ready to go uh, behind glass where you could break it in case of emergency. And, and one of the, you know, when you frame it that way, sounds like just innocuous bureaucratic template making. Um, but of course, one of the curious features of doing it is you reveal what at least somebody in the process and in, in the executive branch thinks might be within the president's powers under the right precipitating circumstances. And so it's not so, it's not that the documents themselves shouldn't exist or are problematic is that you might find claims in there that are potentially beyond the scope of what other people might think would be allowed in that circumstance. So it might tip the hand as to unduly aggressive or, or even preposterous assertions of authority, all, all complicated by the fact that A, it's all hypothetical, and B, you have to factor in what's the precipitating circumstance. Is it literally World War III or is it just Donald Trump saying we have an emergency at the southern border. There's a world of difference between those. So is, is that a fair summation? Because I kind of downplay him a little bit by framing it that way. You know, I think you talked to Deb for the story. I think I also talked to Deb for the story. Um, the, um, I don't think these are the sinister things that they're often portrayed as, right? That, that, you know, as I tried to say to Deb, I think the much broader problem is the legal theories that are often behind the piads, not the piads themselves. Um, and, you know, insofar as maybe you could glean something from a piad that you didn't already know about the government's approach to its understanding. Okay. But, you know, I'm not shocked that the government has emergency action documents. Um, I'd be surprised if they didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Um, in fact, I'd be concerned if they never bothered. Well, like a pandemic playbook that got, got ignored. Um, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, it's again, it's not it's not the existence of these documents that I find at all alarming. Right. It's the broader theories of executive power that are animating at least some of them. And, you know, we have, I think, some pretty good idea of what those theories are, because we've seen, I think, enough public discussion and public disclosure of OLC memos and, and the like to get a sense of, you know, what authorities the government believes it has in, in most emergencies. The problem we've seen, I think we said this before with the Trump administration, is just their inconsistency. Like in some contexts, they assert authority that we don't think there's any basis for. And in other contexts, they refuse to assert authority that you and I both think they have. That, I certainly agree with that theme. And uh, that cannot get enough attention that the, the fundamental problem of of the executive branch's pandemic response is inaction, not unduly aggressive action. It's been the weirdest uh, combination of making rhetorical claims that are wildly over the top about uh, being in charge of the state level responses, uh, but then not actually doing things in the realms where there actually is power. All right, so that there's your PADs. Uh, not, we're not saying nothing to see here, but we are saying that don't be alarmed that emergency documents have been created and certainly don't think that the creation of the documents in some fashion is a grant of authority. They're interesting because they may tip the hand as to what people at some point in time in the executive branch thought might be possible under certain circumstances. Yep. And maybe, maybe it's problematic or maybe it's not. It depends on what, what the circumstances are that are cited as the triggering conditions. All right. Uh, I think that's it. Trumplandia. Let's leave it behind. Let's go. Boy, to do, do I say anything about the president's tweets this morning? 
I, I'm not familiar with what they are, but uh, it is always fun to have it revealed. What are the president's tweets this morning, dare I ask? So the, uh, the president went on a rant about the temerity of the Michigan Secretary of State, who you know, showed real nerve by deciding to mail to every Michigander um, an application, Bobby, not a ballot, an application for voting by mail, for voting absentee. Um, that sounds like what a, a state level secretary of state's in, usually in charge of the electoral processes. I'm sure Michigan has a mail-in voting deal that for people who are qualified. Well, that, not, not, to, not to be clear, Bobby, in 2018, Michigan, by a ballot referendum, um, adopted no-fault absentee voting. So there's no qualification. So this is literally nothing to see here. Well, so there's a, you know, there, there, there were people on Fox News this morning saying this is a violation of Michigan law and Arizona, uh, not, uh, Nevada is doing the same thing. And Trump is like, you know, say two different problems. One, I think he is laying the groundwork if he loses closely in these yeah, states. Absolutely. For saying that he, you know, that to contest the result. Yes. And delegitimize the election. But two, um, he, Bobby, the tweet is not just attacking them for doing that. He's, it's saying he's going to withhold appropriated funds unless they stop. Well, I would say that's a convenient bit of evidence. And, uh, and, and if I represented Michigan, I'd say that's, that's going to be very useful at trial when we're arguing that uh, this is unlawful coercion in violation of federalism. Well, that's just fed, um, not just federalism, Bobby, but 18 U.S.C. Section 598, which actually, believe it or not, makes it a crime right, to, no. to use appropriate, to, to threaten, um, to use appropriate funds as a lever for interfering with individuals' exercise of their right to vote. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, redirection of it. Yeah, so there's also that. It's, it's just ridiculous. I mean, we all understand that the, the bigger game here is just what you said. This is about laying the groundwork for challenging the legitimacy of an election that he very well may lose. And to me, we, I think you and I both were of the camp that during the 2016 election, one of the grave national security threats, there's two tracks to this. National security has elements that we normally take for granted in American society, but that in many countries that are less fortunate, you can't take for granted. But now maybe we can't take them for granted so much either. One of these that reared its head in an ugly way during 2016 was the winking and nodding and encouragement towards private violence that sometimes occurred with Trump himself and certainly with others around him. And, and the specter of opening up a window of legitimacy or widening the, widening the spectrum of people who might be inclined to engage in private violence for political ends is, is, I mean, literally straight out of the fall of the Roman Republic, right? It's straight out of the script. It's, it'd be a disaster for that to become more, more part of our politics. But then Secondly, the, uh, the sort of the on steroids version of that would be an actual rejection by the losing candidate of the legitimacy of their defeat. Yeah. And it is, it is a Pandora's box that we've never truly opened in this country, never truly come close. Um, whether it's 1800 or, or 2000, whatever other uh, problems we've had in our elections, 1876, all our problems would pale in comparison to what would happen if you actually had let, uh, had, had a major party candidate denying the legitimacy of their defeat. Um, it, I don't even want to think about it. So it makes me very nervous. And I think that is core national security. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think the, the question I have is if Trump really is, does go down that route, that, that, that route, um, are the senior members of his party going to stand up to him in ways that they haven't at any point over the last three plus years? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it'll, there will no longer be in that moment. There is no room for temporizing. You're, you're either in for the rule of law or you're out peace and stability in, in the American system as it's always been, or you're out. Yep. Let's not find I, that out. That's a, um, um, I feel like, I feel like we're on a, a product runway, right? Uh, you're either in or you're out. Is that their is that their catch line? Oh, I'm uh, writing that down. Show title. It's Heidi Klum, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I'm more, this, I'm more, I was always more of a fan of America's Next Top Model, and, and uh, I'm a Tim Gunn guy. Tim Gunn is pretty great. Uh, I don't know if your your daughter's old enough yet to be watching Sophia the First rewrite. Oh yes, yes. So Maddie's very into Sophia the First. So you know, you know, Tim Gunn is the voice of uh, yes, uh, yes. Is it Ced Cedric? No, he's not Cedric. He's not Mr. Cedric. He's uh, um, he's the 
like the ombudsman butler guy. Matt, so Matt is on an Elena of Avalor kick right now. So yeah, and you know, uh, there's a connection there. I guess that's like the uh, spinoff from Sophia the First, right? Yeah. They're, so, they're 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 all related. Yeah, just you know, separate. <laughs> those front. who aren't usually, you know, you start digressions. They're like, oh yeah, these guys talking about children's shows. You're darn right, we're talking about children's shows. Just wait, <laughs> Abu El Banat. Uh, that's right. We are fathers of daughters. Um, we uh, went down the rabbit hole on on the Disney Channel the other day, watching the little five minute uh, Minnie's Boutique uh, shorts. Strongly recommend. There's some good comedy. There's some there's some winks and nods for the adults watching. They're just like hilarious stuff going on. But back to our topic. Um, I think that's it for Trumplandia. National security and privacy. Um, the Justice Department came out very loudly revealing that they did eventually get in get into the phone of the Pensacola shooter and thereby established clear clear connections to AQAP and then that this was all presented in terms of Apple ostensibly not having been helpful and that this is further reason why we're going to need legislation the attorney general said uh, to overcome the going dark problem which is to say to mandate either some particular uh, solution or, or a obligation or imposing an obligation on the tech companies to come up with a solution that would enable whatever encryption is on the device uh, to be backdoored by the company itself when presented with a warrant from a judge based on the, a proper showing by the government of need. And of course, this is the Apple versus FBI going dark debate. I got to say, we've had a lot of years now of talk about how, okay, this has got to get fixed, but you know, the government saying we got to get this fixed. Congress has yet to show any serious appetite for legislation. And until there's a bill that seems to have uh, leadership support in both houses, I'm just not going to worry too much about the ins and outs of this and what might actually happen. Um, I feel like what does happen instead is that the executive branch wants to keep the, the pressure on here, and there has been a lot of pressure recently in recent months trying to recast this debate, not as a war on terrorism uh, issue, but as a war on abuse of children issue, which was, I think, proving to be a much more profitable pathway for the Justice Department. Um, bringing back in the, the war on terrorism framing here, it, it's kind of fascinating how little political impact I think that really has, uh, but it's not nothing, so we gotta continue to watch this space. But until there's a bill, I don't know. What do you think? Is there anything uh, more to say about it than that? No. All right. Um, well, we've got some real legal action coming out of, well, coming out of Karlsruhe and Karlsruhe. Uh, out of Germany and the, the German Federal Constitutional Court, which is Germany's high court for constitutional judicial review of German legislation. Uh, they've struck down the 2016 BND statute. That's that's the, uh, the acronym for the, the German original language for the Federal Intelligence Service. This is, the BND is, it functions, it, it handles foreign intelligence collection outside of Germany uh, and, and I guess does some of that from within Germany when it comes to technical collection in the form of electronic surveillance too. But think of it as CIA, if CIA also did all the uh, SIGINT collection that NSA does, not in its military support mission, but in its national intelligence mission. So BND is kind of the counterpart to NSA in that respect. So what's going on here? Um, there's two questions presented in this case. There was a constitutional complaint brought by uh, some journalists, some NGOs. I think the lead entity in the complaint was uh, Reporters Without Frontiers. Um, and they're arguing that as journalists and NGOs abroad, their communications are being surveilled. But more importantly, it, it is framed as a broad facial attack on the constitutionality of the BND's governing statute. Uh, with respect to Germany's constitutional right to privacy found in their basic law, I think it's Article 10, and the free, right to freedom of the press in Article 5 of the basic law. Uh, and the German Federal Constitutional Court agreed. Uh, it's a deeply complex ruling. First question presented is, um, is there constitutional protection uh, for non-citizens outside of Germany? Now, if that question gets presented in the United States, uh, the prevailing answer is no. Constitutional rights do not apply to Vladimir Putin in Russia. Um, the German Federal Constitutional Court just gave a different answer for the German Basic Law. 
expressly talking about the German basic law, German constitutional rights, uh, through the lens of international human rights uh, and framing them as being intended to apply as human rights that apply universally, wherever the German government is acting, in short, German constitutional constraints apply. And that means, Steve, you and I are as protected and Vladimir Putin and others are as protected uh, as anyone else. And the court does make a nod towards the fact that there could be differential application in various ways, but then quickly says here as applied to the right to freedom of the press and as applied to the right to privacy, um, whatever variation there is does not preclude the very strong set of uh, constraints the court then went on to identify. I won't try to summarize it all here. I'm going to write it up for lawfare because there's just, I mean, it's the, the online version of it in English with Google Translate, thank you. Uh, and I guess the German original, 320 something pages. Uh, even the, uh, the press office summary, they do a very convenient, it's like a synopsis. They do a press off or a syllabus. They do a press office summary and it's real long too. Um, there's four or five clusters of objections, many of which can be cured by statutory revision, but not all of it will leave the BND with the same authorities as they had before. Um, some of the constraints include specific requirements of constraints, including compliance with GDPR and other data protection regimes. If Germany's collected something and they're gonna pass that data to a foreign intelligence partner, like Five Eyes, like the United States, um, there's also constraints about the foreign partners giving a search term to the Germans to then plug into their database and oh hello, we have a guest visitor on the show. Who's Sydney? Sydney's here to translate from the German. Guten Tag, Fraulein. Could say hi, Bobby. Hi, Bobby. Who's Maddie, the curious? Could say hi, Mister. Could say hey, hi, Mister. Hello. Hi, Mister. Could say hi, Mister. Bobby. Hi. You guys are looking cute. Are you having fun? Are you having fun? He wants to know. Oh, yeah. Is your dad silly? Am I silly? Yeah. Yes, they're nodding their heads, radio. <laughs> they're right. I guess we've, we've oh, and Maddie is, I, I Maddie is, no, no, Maddie is trying to imply that I'm stinky. Oh, well, yeah, I assumed. Sorry, right. you got to be there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, good times. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to take, I didn't no, mean no, to that's off, awesome. off stride on the, so, the German long, long and short of it, um, the, they've been given until the end of 2021. The Bundestag has to come back with new legislation. It's got to create all sorts of bells and whistles uh, that are written into the statute this time in a way that enables oversight. There's got to be a statutorily um, more resourced and more clearly independent statutory uh, oversight body that's separate from the BND. There's going to be all kinds of limitations and complexities here. It, we'll see how different it ends up being when it's all said and done. It may not end up being all that different. Um, but there's all kinds of complex hints here that it will be. For example, um, if, the, if there's information being shared with a foreign partner that could right. involve a detrimental action taken against a particular person. Right, that's the part where it gets really interesting to us. Uh, exactly, yeah. If you're gonna pass information for military purposes well, or for counterterrorism purposes, or just law enforcement purposes, um, all kinds of constraints. So it, I, I imagine there was great chagrin, not just at the BND's uh, gigantic headquarters, but elsewhere in the, in the German law enforcement establishments. And it will be very interesting to see, um, you know, what kind of reaction, if any, that then, you know, will this result in, in a degradation of the ability of the Germans to participate in any intelligence sharing frameworks? Uh, we shall see. Maybe so. It's, it's, it, this is a, it was a big day for privacy, Yeah, but it was unquestionably a really bad day for intelligence collection and, uh, and for a variety of interests that are served by that, including counterterrorism, counterproliferation, um, monitoring what's going on in relation to uh, general foreign intelligence interests, including those related to the pandemic, also caught up in this. A quick detour to Guantanamo. Let's do it. We got a DC Circuit habeas decision. We got. Uh, it was like Friday morning. And I saw the uh, the the opinion announcement from the DC Circuit. Ali versus Trump. I was like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is this going to be? Um, are you? I, so I'll. My short version of this is: I'm not surprised that the court did not take the opportunity to uh, 
find so two layers of the cake here. One layer is does the due process clause substantively and procedurally apply to Gitmo detainees? Many listeners will think, well, I thought that was decided in Boumedien. The court, the court has the Supreme Court clearly decided the suspension clause applies as to the Gitmo detainees. There's a huge amount of obvious and necessary overlap, especially with procedural due process. I don't know that a huge amount on the procedural side turns on the idea of a distinction there. Um, I don't think personally that there should be a distinction. If, if, if habeas must apply, then it must carry with it some sort of process that is due in the circumstances. And that's what the, that's what the subsequent habeas procedural case law was all about. Um, I'm not surprised at all that the court said that whatever else is happening here, this, this very sort of broadly framed attempt to say that continued detention in the current circumstances uh, without an individual showing of continued dangerousness uh, is unconstitutional. I'm not surprised the court didn't go for that. I thought it was interesting that the, the panel split because the majority said, oh, well, can you unpack how the, how the majority and, and the dissent split there? This is right up your alley. I mean, it's not a dissent, right? It's just, it's just a concurrence. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not a dissent, a concurrence, um, but a very sharp disagreement on the rationale. I mean, so just to be clear, right? So this is, I mean, the, the, we've been talking for a while about how the D.C. Circuit has opened the door for at least some due process-based challenges that we had thought might have been foreclosed by the earlier panel decision in the Kiemba case. Right. So and kind of opened the door to a different approach. Right. And and the question was, you know, the doors open. Is any panel going to walk through it? Right. And and the way I basically read um, the majority opinion from Friday is this panel. This panel is not walking through it now. Right. That they're they're not saying it doesn't apply. They're saying we don't see any due process violations. And we think you've actually not raised all of the potential due process arguments you could have. And so and, it's sort of in the concurrence says. The door should be closed. This is all a big mistake. Well, so we should talk about who wrote the concurrence, right? So the concurrence is penned by Judge Randolph. Shocked um, that he would take this position. Who, let's just you know, remind folks, wrote the um, reversed D.C. Circuit decision in Razul, the reversed D.C. Circuit decision in Hamdan, the reversed D.C. Circuit decision in Boumedian, the reversed, or sorry, the vacated D.C. Circuit decision in Kiamba 1, Right. So, you know, Randolph has some fairly strong views about Guantanamo and habeas. Um, and his basic problem is he thinks Kasim, the earlier panel decision that said, hey, the door is open. Right. That it was wrongly decided. That it was, you know, couldn't be uh, reconciled with either circuit or Supreme Court precedent. Um, I'm not going to, I've written, you know, I have felled forests on why I don't think that claim is correct. Um, I don't think that I don't see the need to do it here. I, he's he's concurring because he's being curmudgeonly and just saying I'm continuing to beat this particular axe that I was right in Kiamba one that I held that there's no due process rights at all and that no panel can disagree with me you know in a subsequent decision. Um, whatever. I mean, I think that's that's not going to be that important going forward. What's going to be important going forward is that I don't see anything other than the rejection of the sort of, you know, due process requires an individualized determination argument. Um, I don't see anything in the majority opinion that would be preclusive, Bobby, of a future panel in a different case using due process to actually impose other constraints, either procedurally or substantively, on the ongoing detention of the 40 guys who are still at Guantanamo. I think that that's right. And I think that so that it's really, for this case, more interesting is the dogs that really didn't bark. And, uh, and the, the dog that didn't bark here is, is really interesting when you dig into it. So Ali is one of the guys associated with Abu Zubaydah. He's one of the guys, uh, sort of a, a group of men who were uh, all at the same guest house. This plays a big central role in, in identifying him as detainable. The basis for his detention was his uh, asserted membership in or being part of the Abu Zubaydah group which was, at least for purposes of, of his case, had, seems to have been analyzed the entire time as a group that was not al-Qaeda as such, but that was believed to be an associated force of al-Qaeda. Now, there, as, as we both know and have talked about on the show previously, there are all kinds of complex questions surrounding what, what turns out to have really been the case with Abu Zubaydah. But setting all that aside, um, as Marty Lederman has emphasized online in some of his comments on this case, um, the, the interesting formal wrinkle here is that there is no longer an Abu Zubaydah group. If, if the group 
that you're an, a member of that was an associated force that brought you into the scope of the NDAA and the AUMF to begin with for detainability purposes, if it no longer exists, can you as an individual still logically be held at all? Or once, it's, once one accepts that the group is gone from the face of the earth in some fashion, does that end it? Now, one can argue that, well, no, his group's not really gone because he and others still constitute that group. That may be the answer, uh, but, but there's none of that argument here, and the court doesn't come to grips with it at all. They assert that the armed conflict continues, that he was part of the Abu Zubaydah group, and that that was deemed to be a covered associated force, and that's all just sort of accepted. Um, I think it's actually very interesting to wrestle with when does, when does a group itself cease to exist? We know this is a hard issue and a complex issue vis-a-vis core al-Qaeda itself. Um, we haven't really confronted it with any of the major associated forces because unfortunately we haven't had fact patterns that enable us to say there is no longer that group or this group. Uh, we get near this when we talk about the possibility of a peace deal with the Afghan Taliban, which wouldn't make the group go away, but would make its connection to the conflict end. Um, but why isn't that a topic for discussion for the Abu Zubaydah set of detainees? I don't know if there's others besides Ali off the top of my head. And, and Yeah, I mean, Marty um, and I, I think Marty and I both have never understood why this hasn't been more central to the analysis. You know, I think Marty um, has been quick to suggest that maybe some of the lawyering hasn't necessarily raised these claims as distinctly as they could have. You know, I'm not, I'm not as sure about that, but I do think that it just all goes to why I think the decision is most notable to me for all the things it doesn't decide. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Oh, it just goes to show you we're never done with Gitmo. Gitmo is never done with us. Um, I think that we are done with our substantive topics. Uh, what else? Have you had friends on the show, normally this is where we turn to reviewing Westworld episodes, talking about which boy bands are the greatest boy bands of all time, or uh, various things, sports. Uh, we, we don't have a pre-planned topic. Do we have any sport talk? Are there any sports? Bundesliga? Bundesliga. You know, I just <laughs> I, I can't go for any of, like, the, the Korean Baseball League and others haven't quite caught my eye yet. I am, you know, watching closely yeah, to see if Major League Baseball comes back. That's fascinating. Um, I think that if they come back and if they play to empty stadiums, I would really like it if they would just suck it up and do a laugh track. Let's get that crowd nose crowd noise pumped up loud and might as well make it sound exciting and try to keep the shot frame not to show the empty stands all these like rule proposals and these rule tweaks that they're talking about like you know realign the divisions have a dh in every game i mean there are some folks who are like yeah it's going to be a weird season anyway so like go crazy nuts and my reaction is makes it all make it all xfl Right. And my reaction is no, like, you know, give me as much of my normal baseball. Like I don't, you know, I don't want to watch, you know, the Mets in a division with like the Mariners and a D- that'll just be like spring training to me. Right. I mean, I, like, I just, I, I guess if, if the sports are going to come back and I'm deeply not agnostic, I'm deeply ambivalent, right. About how much of a priority it really ought to be for the sports to come back. Um, it seems to me that like, they should come back as much as possible to resemble their normal selves. Otherwise, I don't know that they're going to serve the purpose that we want them to come back for. I know that on the uh, the realignment thing, they were trying to keep people, they're trying to minimize travel. And like but, do it like spring training homes. Right. But, but you know, the, the realignments that were being talked about still involve, you know, tremendous travel uh, for most of the teams. What do you think of this? What if to minimize the, the, the back and forth, Let's say that like the, uh, oh, I don't know, the, the Astros and the Rangers were going to be scheduled to play four total series. Uh, what, if they, what if they had to play all, all four series back to back to back to like back? Like a 13-game series? Yeah, what if they, I mean, you space it out, but I, I wonder, like, would that lead to some, like, would it, would it get so monotonous and repetitive, or would it become super interesting because of the familiarity of the, the team? The, the, the problem is, if it were a best of 13 series, it would be super interesting and competitive. But if it's just a 13-game series where you're playing all 13 games no matter what, like, I think it's the latter. And this is my concern. You know, the, anyway, um, but it does give a, a good excuse to ask a really great baseball trivia question that my friend Andrew Weller came up with, um, which is, um, when is the last time right, in a Major League Baseball game that a National League team playing at home used a designated hitter? 
It's a great question because it's, it's, it's not like we're used to the rule being like whoever the home team is right there. If it's an American League team, you get a DH. If it's a National League team, you don't get a DH. But that wasn't always the rule. Right. So when did that rule come into play? So it's, so it's a World Series question going back to before that rule. And do you, do you know the first year where the rule was uh, alternating by who's home? Yeah, that's what I was trying to figure out first. I'm guessing that was 1983. So why would Andrew and I both know the answer to that question? Oh, was it was it eighty six? It was eighty six. Yeah, nineteen eighty six was the first World Series. Let's go Mets. Eighty six was the first World Series where the 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 applicability of the DH or not depended upon whether the American League team was home or the National League team was home. Um, before that, Bobby, they just alternated by year. So in mm-hmm. eighty five, there was no DH at all, whether the games were in St. Louis or Kansas City, which means the last game where a home NL team had a designated hitter was game two of the 1984 World Series, Tigers at Padres. <laughs> and the DH was Kurt Bavacqua. Kurt Bavacqua, nice. That is an excellent trivia question. Thank you, thank you. But, but on that theme, so, you know, like many households, we are watching lots of movies. So we and the kids have all nominated movies, put all the names in the bag, and then on any night we're going to do this we draw from the bag and that's the movie. So the other night we drew a league of their own. Ah, the fam watched. There's no crying in baseball. You kind of had the Tom Hanks growl there. That was good. So that Uh, there's no crying in podcast. There's definitely crying in podcast. Um, I, it really held up well. It had yes. been a long time since I saw it. No, no, it that's, that really movie, that, I can't wait until they're old enough to watch it because I'm, I'm going to really yeah. enjoy watching it with them. When the telegram is delivered to the clubhouse. Yeah. Oh, man, that's a hard scene to watch. True. Yeah. All right. Okay, so can I throw one more baseball trivia question into the ether? I, I'm not going to put you on the spot because this is actually the impossible. This is, this is the I, – I have two levels of really difficult baseball trivia questions that I use to test just how baseball nerdy people are. So the, the mostly impossible question is who holds the rookie record for batting average in a season? Um, rookie record for batting average season. And, and the, the impossible question is only one team in Major League history – has at the sa- in the same season fielded three players, all of whom would have 3,000 hits in their career. Cincinnati Reds? Nope. Yankees? Nope. This is, right. and, and I want the year, too. So, so, I'm so, just going to say, Big Red Machine generally. So, so your, your homework assignment is to come back next week and tell me, and tell me either who has, who, who has the major league record for batting average by a rookie or what single season team was the only team to ever have three players who all amassed 3,000 or more hits in their career? Because only one. And it's so not I obvious. I don't want to take it as a homework assignment because it's just like if I come up with the answer, it'd be like, well, I must have looked it up. And I'm probably not going to come up with the answer without looking it up. So I'll just um, – on the rookie record, is it somebody – let me ask. Is it somebody who you would be like, okay, I can imagine that? Or is it like – it was, you know, Kurt Who knew? It's absolutely, it's absolutely someone who it won't surprise you. What will surprise you is what team he did it for, what year he did it, and that he didn't even win the batting title. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, you, you want, can, can I give you a clue? Yeah, give me clues until I can. The record this. is 408. Really? Yes. There's a rookie. So, so you know, so that tells you. Okay, so course, this is old. Time so this is real old. Yep. Yeah, this is like going to be Ted Williams coming up for for. Ted Williams never hit four hundred. Uh, 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 sorry, Ted uh, Williams never hit four hundred after his four hundred six season. He didn't hit four hundred as a rookie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so sorry, is, Williams, of course, the last player to hit four hundred. Yeah, in my brain. Was yeah, just, sorry. So I'm using that as the outer boundary. Um, I've I've always known that, but I've never given a lot of thought to how many people pulled it off before then. So let me say, this person is famous not because he holds the rookie record for batting average. Yeah. Did the babe do it? Nope. But it's someone with a nickname of the same era. Uh, did Lou Gehrig do it? Nope. Yeah. I should get away from the Yankees, shouldn't I? Well, the, the, so the, the, the really, here's the really confusing part. Um, this person did it while playing for the Cleveland Indians. Um, no one remembers that he was a Cleveland Indian because everyone associates him with the team that he made infamous. It wasn't Shoeless Joe, was it? It was Shoeless Joe Jackson. Wow. Wow. That's who hit, very... Who hit 408, 
for the 1911 Cleveland Indians and lost the batting title to Ty Cobb? I would never have a, I would not have gone with Shoeless Joe. Um, wow. By so, the way, do you think, uh, do you think the field of dreams will hold up well for my kids? Yes. Yeah. You know, um, the, you know, the, the major league baseball was supposed to play a game at the field of dreams. I think this yeah, August. Yeah. That would have been really cool. Yeah. I hope they oh, do they'll, that. they'll get to that originally. You know, Hey, if they reopen, yeah. See if they couldn't play an oh, that would be a really fine opening day for reopening. Dyersville, go to Iowa. Yeah, I mean you're not gonna have a big crowd there anyway, so why not? True enough. All right. Well, um, so my, my here's my challenge to any of the the super nerdy baseball fans who listen to us. The other question is still pending. The only team in major league history with three players in the same season who would all have three thousand hits in their career. You can tweet at me, you can email us, you can, you know, just Know in your heart that you got it right, but it's a it's it's mine and my dad's favorite baseball trivia question. Um, and on that note, I'll, I'll throw one fire. It's not the okay. Mariners, is it? No. All right. No, it is. I had, I had a crazy idea there, but obviously not. The only clue I'll give you, Bobby, is it is a team that currently exists, but from a time when they played in a different city. Yeah. All right. All right. Something to think about. All right. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, you know. Stay safe out there, everybody. Uh, it's what day sixty nine over here. Keep going, you know. Happy, keep, happy graduation. Happy graduation, Texas Law Class of twenty twenty. Uh, calf. Anytime you want to hand down rice, please do. Um, <laughs> otherwise, folks, you know, keep calm and carry on. Adios.